Hi, welcome to the Behind the Balance Sheet podcast, where we meet leading investors and commentators and educate ourselves about the world of investing and the world. Our mission is to remove some of the mystique around investing and improve our understanding of what makes a successful investment or indeed an unsuccessful one. Our goal is to inform, educate and entertain. We hope you enjoy this and every episode. Behind the balance sheet and affiliates and podcast guests may own shares or have an economic interest in securities discussed in this podcast, which is aired for your education and entertainment only. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment advice or relied upon for investment decisions. Always do your own research. I asked Sentio to sponsor this podcast because I use the software tool almost every day. It lacks many of Bloomberg's array of functions, but I never use their vast majority. And Sentio for an equity analyst is, in many respects, actually a better tool. First, the data is really good and generally reliable. Second, it's easy to use and infinitely more intuitive than Bloomberg. Third, it's got some features I never discovered in Bloomberg or other systems. My favorite is the ability to go into a 10K and extract the history for a particular data table. If I want to see the trend in a parameter, and I often do, it's now at my fingertips without having to take through multiple 10Ks, faster and easier. But most important is the price. There's a huge pricing advantage over other systems. And if you're a smaller fund or even a larger fund equipping junior analysts, Sentio is definitely worth looking at. Visit Sentio, S-E-N-T-I-E-O dot com forward slash B-T-B-S for Behind the Balance Sheet for more details. Two investors who went to the same school, then to Oxbridge and have been awarded the CBE. They're both titans in their fields, but through very different routes. One has run his fund for 27 years has an astonishingly good track record, yet is so under the radar that few have even heard of him. The other has started multiple companies, is a business celebrity, and is recognized as one of the most successful people in UK tech. Head to head, John Armitage and Brent Hoberman discuss where quoted investing meets venture. In this fascinating interview, We learn what Armitage and Hoberman look for in an investment, how they judge management, how they view disruption from their different perspectives, and why, in spite of their incredible success, they are both workaholics. Brent, John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. You have a number of things in common. Um, I think you even went to the same school. Did you both envisage ending up in investment or was it just accident? John, do you want to start? Well, in my case, the early stages of my career were like uh, something we used to study when I was at my prep school a long time ago, which was Brownian motion. Shine some light into an enclosed area and you'll see dust particles floating at random. Because I didn't know what I wanted to do, uh, I grew up at the end of the 1970s, missed all my job applications in the Milk Round at Cambridge, uh, and uh, got into Morgan Grenfell without knowing anything about the investing business, why it might be interesting, 
uh, or why it was a good business. And I was lucky enough to, I was lucky enough to find something I liked after a slow start. And uh, I'd say my career took shape probably three years in to my first job. But I had no financial background whatsoever. Right. Well, it took me a lot longer to get into investing. Um, and really, I'm at the other end of the spectrum to John. I'm very much early stage seed, um, no financial analysis required. Um, and what I guess there's two things that got me into it. One was being an entrepreneur myself, so starting companies. And that was partly a sort of family history and family or my, my family had done that. So I thought that was a great thing to do. And then my father actually must have had some subliminal uh, impact uh, because he spent his life investing pension fund money into venture capital funds. And I did do a very early internship when I was probably 19 years old at Sprout Capital, a VC firm in New York. And I learned one thing, that everybody in venture was smarter than me. And at least in New York, they worked harder than I could work. So I was like, well, this is quite scary. Um, but... Uh, years later, once I was able, once I, I, I was not, not full-time starting my own companies, I thought that, you know, meeting entrepreneurs was the, was an amazing thing to do, to be able to do all day. And then to back the right ones was very exciting. So I've set up a couple of, couple of seed venture funds since. So you're both in the in investment business, but from really diametrically opposite ends. I don't know if there are any venture capital funds dabbling in quoted stocks, but quite a lot of quoted equity firms getting involved in, in venture. So we've got, obviously, the, the biggest example in the UK is Bailey Gifford. But, you know, in the US, you've got everybody from Fidelity to, to Third Point, And Dan Loeb's been very vocal about the benefits of, of doing that. I wondered if, you know, do either of you invest in others' area? If you don't, should you? Or what have you learned if you do? John, have you ever considered doing private or early stage in, in deals? And, and, and why not, if you not, if not? Well, not as much as we should have, perhaps. I mean, I'm in two minds about it. You know, the world, business, the world, the economies are in a period of unprecedented change driven by technology. Much of that technology is... Uh, is much of that technology or some of it's being generated by early stage companies and the more insight you one has into it into this change the better as a quoted investor uh i think i mean i'm I, i'm slight and, and so that's why i think you know if we could do it we should do it I guess we've been somewhat restrained recently by an inability to access America. I guess another thing I would say is our funds are essentially open-ended funds. And uh, the bulk of our money is invested in, in funds where we have to provide weekly liquidity. So I'm not that keen on taking on illiquidity risk, having seen major blow-ups in the stock market caused by illiquidity. Uh and you know, I'm also I also there are, I also feel that although you can make these incredible gains from unquoted investments, you know, it is a peculiar point in time when uh the equity market is willing to pay very, 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 very high prices uh and for for these things. And that's partly because 
the corporate sector is the engineer of amazing change at the moment, but it's also because interest rates are very low and, and, and money's being given away. And I'm a bit reluctant on being the person to turn up at the end of the party. Brent, have you ever fancied dabbling in quartered stocks or is it frightening? It's frightening for me. It's funny. It's just, it, it's, it's definitely frightening. Having, I, I'm probably, I've been too scared of it probably because of the last minute.com bubble experience in 2000. I've been too cautious. Um, but I'm also, I like to be a bit more in control and I'm not smart enough to understand where the markets are going to go, the macroeconomic, the, the power of the Fed and all of these things are sort of way beyond my A-level economics. Um, so I find that I, I can do a much, it's much better job of talent spotting early stage seed entrepreneurs. And then right now, as John says, you know, you, they are doing really well. So if, if the seed to series A, you know, path now is, is getting faster, I think, than ever, and the multiples are getting higher than ever. So let's see, the, the key thing in venture now is still, is the final, how do you get out? Um, and obviously, we've just seen that with made.com, but even then, not totally, because you have six months lockups. It's an interesting um, overlap between what you both do. Management is obviously a critical component, and it's a much greater component in your area, Brent. Do you, do you want to just tell us a few of the secrets in judging whether a founder is going to be able to successfully and relentlessly pursue that ambition what do you look for yeah look it's it's hard to say different things but i think probably more than others i'll index on very quickly would i work for them if i was back to my 25 year old self would i work for this person and what i'm really trying to look at is talent magnets is this person going to be able to assemble a world class team and then are they going after a big enough market but the latter isn't even that relevant because if they're that good they'll work out the bigger market to go after. So it really is what I like is people who are obsessive to the point of being unhinged. And that passion is infectious rather than off-putting. Um, and you just know they're going to hire the world's best team and that they're excited about it and their energy is infectious. And then at Seed, you can't do that much more than that. And the one thing I will say is backing people by Zoom, I do think is a lot harder um, and so th that's one of the new risks of this world. John, do you um, like backing obsessive, unhinged management, or what do you look for? Well, I wouldn't say unhinged, but I mean, I, I think what Brent's described is incredibly to the point. I mean, one thing I look for is people who have the ability to say that they've got it wrong. And I always resent people who... You know, nothing is ever a mistake. I, I always resent that because we make mistakes all the time. And how do you realize that you've made a mistake apart from, but, you know, you have to realize that and you have to respond. And I dislike the arrogance of people who, 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 who can never admit to mistakes. Focus, integrity, in the quoted world, incentives. It's amazing how many companies in the quoted world play around with their accounts to justify shareholder, to justify management incentives. And there's a form of dishonesty about not recognizing costs when you should. And, you know, the thing I always like in a company is when you feel whoever you talk to, they express a culture which has, they express a common culture. 
you don't want it to be kind of like at Soviet levels. But there are companies where the quality of the answer, the values, the values they express, you know they're going to be the same. And I think that's important. But look, an example of someone I, I think of as, as an incredibly powerful, brilliant guy is Michael O'Leary, who, you know, he ran an airline whose share price was up last year, which is pretty incredible, actually. And he is, he's relentless. He's, he's fun. He's, he had a vision. He has, he has fantastic people around him. And he'll admit when he gets things wrong. You know, he'll have a Damascene conversion. And I think that's really marvellous. He's a real maverick for a public company CEO, isn't he, though? I mean, I remember I, I, I bumped into him on my roadshow back in 2000. I think he, he must have been doing his just before, and we'd bump into him, and he was like, you thief, Brent, you're nicking it, and because he didn't believe in lastminute.com. And then years later, he, I remember just as I was leaving last minute, he sent his people. We, we were selling Ryanair flights. We were screen scraping them, which was slightly illegal yeah. in any way. And he, he then, his team then said this was all fine. And then they actually ran full page ads in the national press saying lastminute.com ripping you off by adding a margin to our flights and all the stuff. Full page ads, having said it was fine. Um, so anyway, I, I definitely am maverick, but I agree. I respect what he does. It's funny because he, uh, he meets that, uh, those two criteria of brands because he is obsessive and he is slightly unhinged. I can remember, uh, you know, when I, when I started. I wouldn't describe him as unhinged. Well, I started, um, covering it and I went out to the to the office and um, there was you know they were telling me stories the people that worked for him about the memos that went round that you you know if you were went on a trip you were required to take the pens from the hotel room to save on the stationery bill and I mean that has a slight appearance of being unhinged but of course it, it was a fantastic clever trick because it made everybody really focus on costs. And you weren't, I think there was one point where you weren't allowed to plug your phone in to to the power in the office because it was Ryanair's electricity bill and you weren't paying for it. And of course, what that meant was that everybody in the organization was completely obsessed, obsessive about cost. And that, I mean, it's worked incredibly effectively. And I, I, I think you're dead right about not admitting to mistakes. You see, he was one of the few managers that... Um, I came across that when I wrote a cell note on him on the stock when I started covering it, he he wrote back and said, "Good luck, I'll prove you wrong." And he was he was very balanced, and that, that was always the thing that I that I looked for. Other, I mean, other sectors or geographies that you won't invest in, John. Well, I think as a public market investor, one has to be pragmatic. I also believe quite strongly that in the virtues of diversification, although that's been a massive mistake in the last two years. Uh, but, you know, my stance in the last 10 has been that most sectors of the stock market face disruption driven by technology, driven by the impact of technology. And therefore, one could only invest in companies with above average unit growth potential and pricing power. But I mean, I think you know, if you look at, say, the tobacco sector, which, and let's face it, tobacco companies make something which is, which is addictive and has been a habit for, 
whatever it is, at least 150 years since the US tobacco industry started. I think it probably started in the 1850s, 1860s. In 2015 or 2016, Philip Morris put a value of $35 billion on Juul when they bought a, when they bought a stake in the company. Philip Morris itself had a value at the time of a, of a I don't know, probably $110 billion. And yet, Juul had been set up what, three, four, five years before. And so Philip Morris, these seasoned tobacco executives who uh, run a business which makes addictive products, felt this upstart company was worth $35 billion. And that to me illustrates the extent to which disruption is pervasive in the corporate sector. And I think today the key thing you have to focus on is, can this business be disrupted? Brent, are you, is there anything you want to invest in? I, anything, I mean, just to sound soft, it's anything where sort of gambling, sex, those sort of things, you know, cannabis, um, that, that, that's really the, the sort of limits of, of, of what's off limits for us. Um, but I do like, I mean, it sounds a bit soft, but I, like, I do like companies where the mission statements are attractive for millennials, if you know what I mean. So I, I think, obviously, I think when I talked about talent magnets, I think also companies with great purpose are attracting better talent than ever before. So I think there is that change. And so that's what I sort of mean is, that, although actually I think legally we can't invest in some of the things I said, I think also you wouldn't want to because I think for many of those, it's going to be harder for them to attract great talent if they're not doing good things on the planet. And I think that's a really good point. No, absolutely. Brent, I mean, is there anything where you've invested in something and in a sector and it's gone wrong and it's put you off the sector or are you just so used to getting to things blowing up that it's part of the normal course of business and you don't worry about it? Look, it was a really good example. When, when, when for First Minute Fund 1, we, we've actually only lost three out of 56 companies, but I remember my, my colleagues who I did, which is in venture super low and it, it's almost too low. Um, when when my colleagues saw the first one or two blowing up, one was because a founder dispute, founders falling out, which often happens. It, it's a real risk in our businesses. If if new teams come together and then they don't quite gel, then then mm. that often breaks it apart. That becomes un, unfundable. The other one was a, a, a company actually, which probably I should have been savvier about. It was doing fuel delivery, like Uber for fuel. Um, and anyway, it didn't work, but what happened, the team was so stressed about us losing a couple of companies, which were like less than 1% of the fund. It was, it was an interesting process. Whereas I was like, as you said, much more pragmatic is like, this is venture. If we're not getting some wrong, we're not going to get outsized returns anyway. Um, so I think overall, I'm trying to think of any sectors we've sort of learned to stay clear of. But no, it, it's, you know, obviously where the winners are, it, it's fintech, it's AI, it's, it's people um, t- creating new markets uh, rather than just being iterative. This is this zero to one point that Peter Thiel expressed well in his book. Um, so I, I think the, the biggest danger is, and, and where I think we have got it wrong slightly, is, is still is people going after markets that are too small. And then particularly in this world, where there is so much vision and so many people going from, we saw one today, we passed on it at two and a half million. Uh, it's to do with NFTs. It's stuff I don't really understand. Um, they've just got a valuation today rumored at four billion. 
um, in two and a half years. So you think, did we miss it? Yes. Uh, is it necessarily a, a, a big miss? Well, there's there, the rumor is there'll be a $500 million press stack that they're behind doing NFTs for, 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 for in, in a world that's still unproven. So it, it's tough. So the, it hurts more. The, not, the, the ones you miss hurt more than the ones that you invest in that go badly. Yeah, I, I think the anti-portfolio, and I was talking of go nameless, um, to one of the top three venture funds in the UK, the guy runs it. And he was telling me how they studied their portfolio of, of deals that got to their investment committee, their, the ones they did and the ones they passed. In other words, their anti-portfolio. And he said that the anti-portfolio performed marginally, just marginally worse than the portfolio. Now, that tells you two, a couple of things about venture. It tells you, one, if you're as good a brand as one of these top three brands, anything that's getting to your investment committee is pretty good. Um, and two, at the moment, if you're buying an index of the top companies in the early stage, and this is, I think this goes back to your question to John is, should more people be doing it or not? It depends on how long you think that index trade of early stage is going to work, right? And, and last few years, it's, it's worked very well. Sort of anyone investing across a, a portfolio of early stage companies, I think has done pretty well. How about you, John? Is the anti-portfolio, um, do, how's it doing against the Edgerton portfolio? Do you, get, do you give your team into trouble with the things they miss rather than the things they get wrong? Well, I mean, it's the things which go wrong that can make you lose money, of course. It's not the things which miss. You know, we measure ourselves against an index, and if we underperform the index, that's a big black mark, and it gives us a hell of a, and we, I, one experiences a hell of a lot of grief. And so naturally, one's looking at what one's missed. I think the sectors which, I mean, you know, what do I find really difficult? I, I mean, what I find difficult, I suppose the sector we've invested in the least besides besides just trying to ignore companies which face disruption is healthcare because i've always felt that uh the uh i've always felt that clinical trials are very very hard to predict and i remember vividly once when we had a holding in hoffman laroche and they had uh i think it was avastin which had incredibly good action in certain sorts of cancers, and it should have had great action in colorectal cancers. All the experts said so. And in fact, it failed. And I remember then once asking the CFO of, maybe it was Novartis, how they think about early stage, how they think about late stage clinical trials. And they basically said it was an option. You know, they couldn't predict late stage clinical trial outcomes. And so I felt, well, if they can't, how can I? But the drug sectors probably moved on from there. Uh, so anyway, that's the sector we do the least in. And I guess today, look, inevitably one's influenced by uh, one's formative years. And in my formative years as an investor, you know, 20, 30, 20 times earnings was a high multiple for a stock. And I can bring myself to pay high PEs. But I find the whole business today that such and such a company is cheap because it's on 10, 15, 20, 30 times revenues. I find that impossible. You know, I like to own companies where there is some valuation, some chance of a conventional valuation support within a few years. And that has meant we've missed a lot of big winners in the stock market. 
which trade on big multiples of revenues. Well, you miss them now, but obviously you've got to stick to you've got to stick to your process, and you've got to stick to what you feel. Well, you've got to stick to your process, provided it doesn't lead you to the wrong place. But it's not, you know, investing is not about religion. Brent, I mean, do you think do you find problems with these valuations, or are you just rubbing your hands because you're the recipient? You know, one thing I learned at lastmonth.com was. You know, when the, the market was happy to give us a view in, in the good, in the few good minutes of the valuation time, it was happy to view us on what was the future option value of all the things this management team would be able to create. So not looking at a traditional sort of income stream, but look saying look, these guys might reinvent several other different income streams. Um, so, and, and I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not comparing myself to, to what's happening with Tesla or something, but if, if you look at, the Tesla bull case, it is much more like, look, can this guy change? Can he create energy storage, you know, from nothing, you know, all, all sorts of other option values. And when friends of mine were were shorting Tesla, I was like, I don't think you can bet against this guy because the people are going to give him option value to do, even if your your logic on number of cars sold, et cetera, et cetera, is right, you're missing what the extra potential is. Similarly for the way you look at that, I think it's about TAM, total addressable market. It, it's similar to the way people looked at Uber initially, was saying, well, look, the valuation is all of the taxi market or whatever. And then Uber would say, no, we're going for the entire transport market. So, uh, but going back to your point, do do the do traditional valuations scare me? Um, sorry, do the valuations today scare me? Yeah, they do a bit because I've lived through 2000. Um, but what it means for me is that I'll do more where I can in in the uh, in the early stage where I still think these companies are, you know, challenging. They're going to be so many winners. Like you know, I mean, one that's a French health insurance disruptor, and you're like, it's unbelievable. It's got to a valuation of over a billion in 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 five years, and I think it could go far from here because the option value of them changing health insurance across Europe is is something I can really get my hands around, head around, and understand. No, I, I absolutely get it. John, your last letter, you were talking about bubbles or certainly excessive euphoria in a number of areas, alternative energy, EVs, SPACs. Brent, you chaired a panel in Clubhouse with some really pretty eminent VCs and founders. I think, was it Fabrice Grinda, Grinda who acknowledged there were VC-backed companies coming to market earlier than they should? I just wanted to talk about SPACs because it seems like a very, you know, an area where there, where there is the greatest um, euphoria and perhaps one of the areas of excess. I don't know. I mean, John, is it, is it just too irrational that you can't make money by shorting these things because you, there's no limit to where they can go? How do, you, how do you think about these things? Well, at the moment, money is free and we are in a bubble, or at least there are bubbles. I don't, I don't happen to think that there are a lot of companies which are listed in the stock market which are not bubbles, but there is a bubble. I mean, look, Cathy, uh, the latest hot fund manager on Wall Street is a woman called Cathy Wood. They were, and she, you know, when you look at the companies she owns, a lot of them, to me, seem totally ridiculous. And their research piece on Tesla, which gave it a share price target of 3200 that would imply 15% of US GDP. <laughs> I mean, let's get real. <laughs> there isn't going to be a shortage of electric cars. 
I mean, Elon Musk is a genius. So far, Tesla has a $600 billion market cap, and it hasn't made any positive free cash flow from making cars. If you strip, if you add, if you take stock-based comp as a cost, which it is, and if you ignore EV credit sales, and there isn't going to be a car company in the world. My perspective is there isn't going to be a car company in the world which can stay in business without making EVs. So there isn't going to be a shortage anytime soon. But, you know, he's, and do I think there's a bubble in the SPAC market? I'm sure there are some good companies coming to market via SPACs and short-circuiting the conventional SEC approach. But yeah, there are some ridiculous companies coming to market. Is there a bubble there? Yeah. Look, GameStop is a company which doesn't make any money, has a vast market cap, hasn't made any money, and it's a, and it's a physical distributor of computer games. Let's get real. Why does that have a valuation it has? Because there's a retail bubble. It doesn't make any, any money. And how are people going to buy games? They're going to go to a shop when they can download them. I mean, let's just think about that one. So yeah, I do think there's a bubble in lots of places. But you always get bubbles when you have easy money and when you have technology change. You always get bubbles. Look, it happened in the railway boom. It happened in the bicycle boom. It happened in the 1920s. And that's not to say that there are, that there are not fantastic companies in existence being invented or listed, which are and will change the way we live and work. That There are. And Tesla is one of those companies, but it is a $600 billion company, which doesn't make any, any money from making cars at the moment. And every single car company around the world is going to make electric cars, because if they don't, they won't be allowed to exist. I mean, it's a pretty amazing thing that suddenly the market cap of the auto sector globally has just gone through the roof. Why is that? Because every single car company is making EVs. Brent, do you... Do you drive a Tesla? No, I would have loved to actually. My wife went for a we, we went for a hybrid, um, but I, I I love I love gadgets. So for me, the Tesla is 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 a just a great gadget. It's as simple as that. Are you making any investments in the EV space or in that related space? Anything coming down the pipe that we should be thinking about? I think for us, it's it, I do love the picks and shovels of some of these trends. So I guess the picks and shovels of this trend would be. One we're very excited about. It's out of Cambridge um, uh, AI Labs, and it's called Wave, W-A-Y-V-E. It is autonomous driving. It is a different type of algorithm to do autonomous driving. Um, so they, I think we'll hear a lot more about them. Um, and so I think that's pretty exciting. Otherwise, look, I think it, what other venture capitalists are being smarter at, I think that, you know, I'd, I'd love it if I could tell you we were in a battery storage company. I think there's a couple that have got really hot valuations. There's one in Scandinavia, there's one in the in the in the UK recently. Um, I think EV tolls, electric vertical takeoff and landing. So we've got. I was intrigued by. We had two. Uh, we had vertical at Founders Forum, which is Stephen Fitzpatrick, serial entrepreneur. He did Ovo Energy, and now he's on vertical. Which, to your previous conversation, he took public. It's going into a two billion dollar spac. Um, Again, a good example of something where the European markets, we haven't talked much about European versus US, but European markets wouldn't really tolerate that. But I can totally understand him doing it. He's now raised a lot of money for a big, bold bet. And 
it's probably a bit binary for for I mean, I'm sure it's a bit binary for people like John, but it's binary for most investors in, in in Europe. And so we'll see how how that one goes. But otherwise, on the EV, the other ones I've seen, um, I was on a I'm on the advisory board of uh, Imperial Innovations, small fund, and they are doing one which is electric grid so i think we'll see a lot a lot more in charging stations for evs so that's another sort of interesting picks and shovels i think you can get the right players there that's that that's very exciting um and then at founders from the other day we had lucid motors up as well and they are i think going for a 40 billion dollar spac um so there is you know there is quite a lot of excitement I mean, it's quite extraordinary that that valuation. I mean, Lucid vehicle looks fantastic, and um, one of the team presented at a conference a couple of years ago, and seems to be entirely ex-Tesla people. So people that, and of course, there's a massive pool of um, ex-Tesla senior senior managers because nobody can last that that long. Quite quite interesting. Forty billion dollars. What's Volkswagen capitalize that? It's not forty billion actually. It's less, but it's very high. Look, you know, I, to me, that's an example. At the moment, that company is a business plan. And every, there are going to be a hell of a lot of high-end cars. There are going to be a hell of a lot of high-end automakers making EVs. And since they can, you know, and they said that the whole thing about, they, I mean, one of the things they were very bullish about was the efficiency of their battery technology. Well, Mercedes has just launched an S-Class equivalent with battery technology, which is only slightly less efficient than theirs. And, you know, frankly, it's going to sell at a cheaper price. So I don't know. I mean, they might make a good product, but they're going to face a lot of competition. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Because the, the something like Tesla is fantastic to drive and is clearly a very different way of, of building a, an, an automobile. But the car companies, although they've been generally, it's been difficult to find good investments, they're very well-run businesses. And their ability to spend an R&D is very, very significant. And I think people have given too little store to the incumbents. I mean, anytime you, get a new te- anytime you get a new technology, you open it up to very disruptive new entrants. But the question is whether the existing players can respond. And my take on the whole EV thing is, look, every single car company is going to make EVs. They just are. And why are they going to do that? Because they won't be allowed not to. And so therefore, it's fine to be a new entrant in the EV space. But are you valued as if you're going to face competition? Because you are going to face a lot of competition. This is not like car companies are not natural monopolies. Search is a natural monopoly business. Social networking is a natural monopoly business. Providing online maps is a natural monopoly business. You know, uh, the provision of digital wallets is a natural monopoly business. Uh, credit card networks are natural monopolies. Because once you have once you have scale, why would you go anywhere else? Waze is a natural monopoly. Well, having said that, there are a lot of different maps. But how many maps are there going to be? If they exist, people are going to use... Making luxury cars is not a natural monopoly business. I agree. And look, I, in one sense, look, absolutely, we look for network effects, which is what you're describing, where you can get super yeah. normal margins over time. I guess another argument, sorry to bang on about Tesla, but one argument that they would say is they are a network effect business because they want to replace Uber and have a network of 
cars that you can use other people's cars and, you know, all that sort of thing. You're dead right. But how far off are we from real autonomous driving? Well, if you, if you talk to our guys from Wave, my guys from Wave, tell me we'll be having autonomous groceries delivered in London in Q2 next year. I mean, Google's spent the most money on this and they would say we're a long way off. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, maybe people are going to buy lots of cars worth sixty, seventy, eighty thousand $80,000 and let them be used overnight. I don't know. I mean, will you let your Tesla Brent when you buy it and you spend $100,000 on a Tesla S-Class, are you going to let some stranger drive in that all night? Yeah, I am. But, but I'm, I'm, I'm also the guy who backed Stelios with Easy Car, okay. which, which, remember, was secondhand Airbnb for cars. So I, 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 I argued around this a lot. I mean, I don't know. I'm a bit skeptical and I'm skeptical. I think there's a hell of a long way to go between here and there in autonomous driving. I mean, autonomous driving in an American winter. I mean, Elon Musk consistently talks about autonomous driving. And then if you read his filings, he consistently says he's way off it. I think that the best defense of autonomous driving was Larry and, and, and Sergey from Google saying, we will look back and think it's crazy we let people drive cars because they have so many accidents. We will, but when? But when? I mean, the, the people at Google spend so much money on this and they've driven more aut- autonomous miles than anyone else in the world. And they would tell you, you're a hell of a long way off. If that's 10 years away and we have full line of sight of that in five years, then their valuation will start to pop then, you know. I mean, it is $600 billion. No, look, I'm not, I'm not saying I'd be long Tesla. <laughs> and of course, um, the, the good chaps at Bailey Gifford have um, significantly diminished their holding. I was quite amused to read in one of their marketing documents that they felt that Tesla was going to be making millions of cars and its valuation was very comfortable at the same time as the, 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 the filing, the holdings were, were declining. But they've done an amazing job there. Um, John, you were once quoted, I don't know if it's true, as saying that your hobby was reading annual reports. Is, is that right? Well, I'm certainly a workaholic. And I certainly don't like commuting, going back to London on Sunday afternoon because it means I can catch up more on Sunday. I mean, I'm a workaholic. And there are lots of things I'd rather do. There are lots of things I'd rather work than do lots of different things. And I do work every single day of the year, yeah. Is that why you've been so successful? Well, I mean, I always hate answering these questions because basically I feel success is a question. You know, I'd, I never sort of feel particularly successful. Uh, and I particularly, you know, and, and uh, I sort of measure my success by reference to the very recent past, whatever success I've had. What I would say to you is that if you start with a healthy dose of insecurity and uh, and a sort of workaholic-driven temperament, that's a big help to getting ahead with something which you enjoy. And, you know, I was not in college at Eton. I don't know whether you were, Brent. But being successful is not about being able to write, being able to be, it's not being able to be a top engineer at Google. It's finding something you like, which you have enthusiasm for, and really applying yourself hard to that, and uh, always feeling you've got more to learn, and, uh, and always worrying, I think. But then again, not worrying too much. Because if you worry too much, you're frightened of your own shadow and you never do anything. There are some people in the investing world who are just natural geniuses. 
and we've all come across them. But I don't think, but I think to be successful, you don't have to be a genius. But you do have to work hard. And I always think of that quote of Gary Players. It's quite remarkable that the more I practice, the luckier I get. Although investing, that doesn't always work. To be successful, you need to work hard, but you also need to catch a zeitgeist at certain times. Yeah. Timing is incredibly important. And being in the right place, you know, knowing what to work on. Yeah. But I so agree with you on that effort and that bit of when one thinks about bringing up one's kids is how do you get them to a space where it is effort, that there is enough insecurity there that they are so driven um, and that they they realize that it's it's finding a passion right. that they love doing. I, and I know, I know that, I know that, this is a cliche and all parents say it, but I do remember my father once saying to me, and it's so true, it doesn't matter how you do, provided you do your best. And I, I think that there's a challenge, and now maybe I'm sort of going off piece a bit, but I do feel that there is this millennial entitlement. And I don't know whether you see that with some of your employees, but we're certainly hearing about, I think we're seeing this more and more where people feel that, you know, work-life balance is is one of their primary goals and that they therefore what they're doing what i always say to people is you know my work life is balanced because i love my work um so you know but but there are more and more people coming into the workforce now i think who are seeing that as you know destructive for their mental health etc etc so we're we're seeing and and i think as employers we're finding that this is becoming a new channel I mean, I think that's really pathetic because they're also expecting great working conditions and lots of money. I think it's just so pathetic. And I, I think the millennial anti-vax movement is pathetic as well. Yeah. You know, oh, I agree. Vaccination is right to beat this pandemic. I just don't think it's right for me. Yeah. I mean, it's pathetic. Very selfish. Yeah. Brand, you're a workaholic as well, right? Yeah. And, and I guess similar to, to John in that what I would say is... And I, you have something you love. I love it. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky. I've created a thing which my work now is meeting, you know, most of it is when I describe it across all the different things I do. It's meeting entrepreneurs, hearing their ideas, being inspired by them and trying to give some inspiration back and, and, and help them. So I can leverage them. I get satisfaction from helping them. And I get satisfaction from hearing and learning about new ideas all the time. So what would, you know... And so I always say that doesn't feel like work, work to me. It doesn't feel like work, which is why I can do so much of it. That is a brilliant point to end. Thank you both. Can I just ask you one sort of closing question and some advice for younger people that might be thinking of coming into investing in, in whether it's in venture capital in your case, Brent, or in, into asset management in your case, John? When do you have a favorite book or a practice or a training that you would recommend to a young person coming into the industry? Brent, you want to go first? My favorite book. Well, I'll go back to maybe it was a long time ago, but Jim Clark's The New New Thing. Um, so he was the, the founder of Netscape thing, yeah. and, a, and a couple of um, billion dollar businesses. I think you can take away from it sort of building building loyal teams, you know, going after bold, innovative projects, those sorts of things. And, and I remember being very energized after I read it. John? Well, I would say, uh, look, there are two aspects to investing. One is the technical thing. Companies are worth, since merchants first traded, a good they bought and sold, they'd only buy it if they thought it was going to be worth more than they bought it for, all right? And there's a limited number of ways that you can value companies. It's all about the cash. So on the one hand, you know, read, I guess the best standard analytic investment textbook is Benjamin, is Ben, is Ben Graham's security analysis. But 
you know, in the end, all companies are only worth what their cash flow is going to bring them. And there is only a limited number of ways you can analyze that, sort of technically. And the concepts aren't very difficult. It's addition, subtraction, you know. So I would say read one of those and then read the letters of great investors. And there are a number of great investors around the world and read them for their ideas and because of the way they think, because of the analytical qualities and judgment they bring to bear. And there are a number of great investors around the world. And, you know, I know the folks at Lone Pine. I think they're sort of utterly brilliant and a bunch of very good people, incredibly, incredibly good people. I think Chris Hon is one of the finest investors of his generation at TCI. Uh, obviously, there's a there's a friend of mine in New York called Eric Mandelblot. You know, reading how great thinkers express themselves is incredibly educational. But if this is the closing thing, can I just end by saying uh, Stella Shulzin was a great break for us. Oh, that's amazing, amazing, amazing to hear. Thank we you. love meeting her. She was sweet. Yeah. And she gave us money at a very early stage, and I really valued that. Oh, that's, a, that's amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm so pleased she did, and I'm so pleased you she, she loved the relationship with you. And um, She was truly wonderful. Yeah, she was. She was. She was great. I should explain that th- this is Brent's grandmother was one of John's early investors. So it was a very, very early good connection. In a very significant way for us at the time, and she was truly wonderful. And she took that decision, I assume, John, I never talked to her about it, but I think it's, a, it's how she invested in you was she was backing people, right? I, I think, that was I think she was, yeah. yeah. Sculptress, actress, and much more. Oh, she's wonderful and very, very, very bright. And also Brent, one of the, in addition to Brent's professional achievements, of course, one of the things he's been is, you know, one of the greatest honours that could ever befall anyone who was at our school, a fellow of Eton. That's true. Yes. Yeah. And I tell you, that's a hell of a lot more difficult than getting into the House of Lords or or or, or getting any form of honour. <laughs> it was. It was. It was a, a fascinating experience, and and that school has gone on well to do some of the things we talked about. Actually, just very briefly, you know, I think Eton's important because what it's done, I think, it mirrors the UK in a way. It's gone from a, a when John and I were there, a school which was about elitism to one that is now much more modern and about excellence. And also does a lot in terms of its efforts vis-a-vis academies, the curriculum. Yeah, and and one of the things I did when I was there, John, was actually I I helped persuade them to do EatonX, which was take the brand online. And that is now, as you probably know, been given away to all state schools so they can have a bit of Eaton's education for free. Thank you both enormously. I really, really appreciate your time. That was a fascinating session for me. John Armitage is a brilliant investor and he's deeply thoughtful, intellectually rigorous and comfortable that he doesn't get everything right. Brent Hoberman has also had incredible success in a very different field and in a very different style. But it's the commonalities that I took away. They look for similar things in management, passion and dedication. They're both workaholics because they love what they do and neither is satisfied with what they've achieved, and they have a constant thirst for improvement. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. 
Thanks for listening. I'm Steve Clapham, and that was the Behind the Balance Sheet podcast. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to rate the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whichever platform you use. And don't forget to sign up on our website, behindthebalancesheet.com, to get our newsletter and access to our club, where we post free training, podcast commentary, and much more. Thanks for joining us. We'll be right back.